Bibles, well, to 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 3.18, we're only going to look at that one verse for our text tonight, and we'll look at it as we get further into our message, but the title of this evening is, Why is Good Friday Good? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we call it Good Friday? As Christians, we have a tendency and and we've made it a habit of assigning status, like holiness, to physical, moral, or spiritual qualities or things. And it can probably be traced all the way back to a long line of pagan ancestors who it seems were willing to worship anything that they found and insisted on finding some kind of religious meaning in everything they couldn't understand. Any object might be deemed holy. And we've seen throughout the years of the church in his religious history, um, those things can become idols. And they're worshipped. Anything that had some connection to a god. So that place or that thing would be considered holy. They had holy trees, holy hills, holy buildings, holy days, and so on. You know, where they would bow with sincere reverence and at some appointed time or season. You know, God married Moses's body. Nobody knows where it was buried. And that was probably because if People would have found it, and particularly if Satan would have found his body and and invaded his body. Think of the damage that Satan could have done using Moses' body, you know, to the people and to the church or to the Old Testament saints. The Ark of the Covenant. Why hasn't it been found? That would have probably become the biggest idol that there ever was. You go to Israel on tours. And places where they think Jesus was or or any big event in the Bible was, they make it a monument. As a matter of fact, when you go there and you see where they think Peter's mother-in-law lived, holy moly, it looks like a flying saucer. (laughs) I am serious. They make this huge, this, 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 this gaudy house and it's just, you know, and it's, and it's basically idolized by many people. This is where Peter's mother-in-law lived. So again, but we've done the same thing today. We have so-called holy days, even seasons, Christmas, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Good Friday. We hold special services and masses on these days. We even even have water that some say is holy. People wear religious articles that they claim are blessed or have been blessed. You know, when I was a young boy and, and, and before I went to Vietnam, my, bra- my grandma got a St. Christopher medal for me. And I'm sure a lot of young boys got St. Christopher from their grandmas before they went off to Vietnam. She took it and had it blessed. She took me to Our Lady of Guadalupe, the little rock church on Arrow Highway. I think it was in Irwindale. And she took me there and lit a candle and prayed for my safe return. But in the field of jet engine mechanic, 
what, what I did in Vietnam, the technicians weren't allowed to wear any kind of jewelry, rings, necklaces, you know, religious medals, as a safety precaution. It was to avoid coming in contact with any electrical components or getting caught on any part of the aircraft. So one day I was out checking an engine that the pilot had reported as having excessive vibration. I'm out there checking things out and, and the sergeant in charge came out and he saw that I was wearing my St. Christopher. He told me, hey, Sergeant, you have to take that off. And of course, at 20 years old, I said, I'm not taking it off. It was my right. It was my protection. It was blessed. It was holy. And most important of all, Grandma gave it to me. <laughs> That's what I, ain't no way. And yet the scripture says, there is none holy like the Lord. John 15, 4 says, For you, God, alone, notice, you alone are holy. There's only one that's holy, and that's God. Good Friday, as we call it, is also known in different countries as Holy Friday, Black Friday, Great Friday, Long Friday, Silent Friday. And as we all know, it's the Friday before Easter Sunday. And it's traditionally celebrated as the day that Jesus was crucified. But it's another one of those biblical oxymorons or contradictions. You see, if Good Friday is the day that Jesus was, was tortured and crucified, why in the world is Good Friday called good? What's so good about it? Have you ever thought about it? Why is it called Good Friday? And it's a question that, that you know, baffles even children as well as adults. But when you really stop to think about it, it's not really made clear to us why we should call Good Friday good. Being it's the day that our Lord Jesus Christ died a terrible death. How can Good Friday be good when it's a reminder and a celebration of the day that the sins of mankind were the cause of the most gruesome death of our Savior? Well, it's because Jesus, by his death, showed his great love for man and purchased salvation for him through the shedding of his blood. That's why it's good. The phrase Good Friday isn't mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And neither is the word Friday. The only day called by a given name in the Bible is the Sabbath day or the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. All the other names of the days are called the first day, the second day, and the third day. So again, should Christians remember Jesus' death by celebrating Good Friday? The Bible doesn't tell us to do it. There's no instruction or command for Christians to do anything in remembrance of Christ's death by honoring a certain day. But the Bible does give us freedom in these matters. Paul tells us some think one day is more holy than another, while others think every day is alike. He said, you should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. You know, and, and if, if somebody, if some church doesn't have a, a good Friday service, they're, they're thought of, oh man, you know, they're, they're frowned on. I mean, what kind of church is that? They don't have, again, it's a traditional thing. It's not, again, commanded or instructed to do in the scriptures. Rather than remembering Christ's death on one specific day of the year, though, once a year, the Bible does instruct us to remember Christ's death by observing the Lord's Supper. 
There's no specific time or number of days that were said to do that. And we're going to do that at the, you know, again, the end of this evening. Paul said, uh, recorded Jesus' words. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So again, why is Good Friday referred to as good? Because what the Jewish authorities and Romans did to Jesus was definitely not good. The people who arrested Jesus Christ and led him to the home, uh, then led him to the home of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, it's where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered together. And inside the high priest's home, the chief priests and the entire high council, they were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so that they could put him to death. But even though they had found many who agreed to give false witness, they couldn't use any of their testimonies. So they charged him with blasphemy because of something that he said. And often during Christ's ministry, the leaders asked Jesus to give him a sign that he was Messiah, that he was who he said he was. But Jesus wouldn't do it. He said, There's, he said one sign I give you, and that's the sign of Jonah, who was swallowed by a great sea creature, and he was in the belly of the whale for three days, which is a picture of the resurrection. Then Jesus used the image of the temple to convey this truth of the resurrection. You know, when they were wanting a sign, he says, I'll give you a sign. He said, destroy this temple and in, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now being spiritually blind, they misunderstood what he was saying. And so based on that statement, they said he was guilty and deserved to die. But you see, when Jesus had destroyed this temple, he wasn't talking about the temple that they worshipped in. He was talking about his body, because our body is the temple of God. He said, I'll destroy this temple, he was saying, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. Speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. And how many times when, when, when you know, we, we hear things in the Bible, we don't understand it, and we go off track. Just like the religious leaders did. We go off track because we don't understand it rather than researching and looking for the truth. Then they began to spit in Christ's face and punch him with their fists. Some slapped him around. They mocked him. And they would say, hey, who hit you this time, Jesus? Then very early the next morning, the chief priests and the elders, they all got together again. And they got together to make plans for putting Jesus to death. And then they tied him up. And they took him to the governor, Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And after Pilate was through questioning Jesus, he ordered Jesus to be whipped. And many times those who were whipped died from their injuries before they even got to the cross. Then they turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They made a crown of thorns and they shoved it down on his head. They didn't take it and place it nice and gently on Jesus. They took it and they shoved it down on his head so that the thorns pierced his skin and caused it to bleed. They placed a reed in his hand and, and, and you know, like it was a scepter, mocking him as the king. And then they knelt before him in mockery and they taunted him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him some more. They pulled out his beard. 
You know, you, you, you yank out two or three hairs and it hurts. Can you imagine grabbing a chunk of his beard and yanking it off of his face? How painful that must be along with everything else that he had. They grabbed the stick that they put in his hand and then they beat him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking Jesus, they took off the scarlet robe and they put his own clothes on him again. And then they led him away to be crucified. Then after they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers at the bottom of the cross, the foot of the cross, they gambled for his robe by throwing dice. Then a sign was fastened to the cross right above Jesus' head, stating the charges against him. And the sign said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And that was his charge for which he died. The people that were walking by, they shouted insults at Jesus. They shook their heads in disgust. They mocked him. The chief priests and the teachers of religious law and the elders, they also mocked him. But it's just the first day. It's only Friday. How much worse could it get? Then the earth trembles and the sky turns black. Everything goes dark. And the Savior's last words are spoken. He says, it is finished. And then it says, he released his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He released it. And at that point, all hope was crushed. The demons are celebrating. They're dancing in the streets. They're celebrating their supposed victory. And I picture the demons holding up Satan's arm like a boxer who knocked out his opponent. Because he's won. Death is the winner. Then Jesus was taken down from the cross. And Jesus, along with all of man's future hopes, is buried in a borrowed tomb. Gone and lost forever. Then a huge millstone is placed in front of the tomb and the tomb is sealed and Roman soldiers are assigned to stand guard, but there's still two days to go. Even though it appeared to be a bad day, the results of Christ's death are very good. Very good. Paul said, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love for all mankind was, the, was one of the significant reasons for the justification of sinners. Because you see, without this compassion that Jesus had, no one could be saved. Because this compassion of God was the great driving force. It was the motivation for Calvary. But... Mankind is always challenging God's love. It's always questioning God and asking him to prove it. And, and, and he has proved that he loves us because we're still alive. We're not in hell. Romans 5, 8, where Paul said that God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, he still died for us. And that, that Romans 5, 8 gives us a quiet answer to all those who would challenge God's love for man. And the word demonstrate means to demonstrate, to display, to give evidence, to prove something. So our text shows the proof of God's love for us, for all mankind. 
And the death of Jesus gave evidence of and proved that God's love for sinful man was infinitely great, far superior to any love known by man. And Jesus' death on the cross shows us so much about the great love, the infinite love of God for sinners. Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary proves without a shadow of a doubt the great love of God for all mankind. And as John said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that kind of selfless, undeserved love is totally beyond our understanding. Totally beyond human understanding. I love what John said in his first letter. He said, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. The word behold means look. It's it's the idea of looking something that is not of this world. And that love of God was not of this world. It was of heaven. It was out of this world. And yet that's the love that the just and infinitely holy God had towards us, even while we were still sinners, while we were still sinning. The God who hates every sinful thought and every sinful behavior, notice, he still loves the sinner who thinks those things and does those things. Even while they're still hopelessly caught up in their sin, even while they're still saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't need you. I don't believe in you. He's saying, that's okay. I still love you. And I will love you until the day you die. Literally till the day you die. Even when men openly hate God and shake their fist at him and blaspheme him. Even when they have the least desire to give up their sin. They're still the objects of God's redeeming love and his grace. Again, as long as they're alive. It's only when an unbeliever dies. That God stops that, that he stops being loved by God. After that, that person is eternally beyond the superiority of God's love and then is destined forever to the wrath of God. Because in Christ, we're connected forever to God by his love, demonstrated in blessings and mercies to us. The worst case of mistreatment to ever happen on earth was the mistreatment of Jesus Christ. Here was the Son of God in a human body, God incarnate, God in the flesh, treated like a common criminal in spite of the fact that Jesus never did anything wrong. The Bible says that Jesus went about doing good. The Bible says that Jesus did all things well. The Bible says that Jesus had no sin. He knew no sin. So the mistreatment of Jesus is no reflection on Jesus. It's not a reflection on Christ. It's a huge disgrace and reflection upon man. Peter tells us now in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
We, there, there's so much in this one verse that we're going to look at right now. First of all, Jesus is a partner with us in suffering. Jesus suffered tremendously like no one ever suffered before. So when we suffer and we go through trials, Jesus knows what we're going through. Therefore, he, he makes a great sympathizer. He makes a great helper to us when we're in our problems, in our trials. It says in 1 Peter 3, 18, at the beginning, it was, for Christ also suffered. And believers can find a, a, a lot of comfort in the fact that Jesus also experienced a lot of suffering that he didn't deserve. And his suffering was a lot greater than any suffering that believers have ever or will ever experience. Paul made that point when he said, For our present troubles, they're small and won't last very long, but they will produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs our troubles and, th- and will last forever, our glory. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen because the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we can't see will last forever. There was purity for the suffering. 1 Peter 3.18 notes it says that the just, the just, Jesus had no sin, and yet he suffered terribly. Terrible mistreatment in persecution from his enemies. There was substitution in his suffering. The just, again, 1 Peter 3.18, the just, which was Jesus, for the unjust, which is you and me and all of mankind. Jesus suffered for you and me and every breathing soul. Jesus' suffering at Calvary upon that cross was substitutionary. He took our place. He had no sin to justify his suffering because his suffering was for those who, have, who, who, who did have sin. There was purpose in his suffering. God doesn't do things randomly. He, you know, he suffered so that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18 says. The psalmist said in 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. In other words, compared to the wrath of God, the wrath of man is nothing. And the more men rage against God, the more God is glorified. And compared to the wrath of God, the wrath of man is nothing. When Satan thinks he has defeated God, he learns that his schemes only help God to defeat him. And so it was with the mistreatment of Jesus Christ. It resulted in Calvary and the salvation of sinners. Definitely not what Satan wanted to happen. Then we see the effectiveness in the suffering. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, He suffered once for sins. Once for sins. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which were very ineffective and inadequate, they had to be offered over and over and over again for 1,400 years before Christ came. And then those sacrifices, those Old Testament sacrifices, they only covered sin. That's why they had to be made over and over again. But Jesus only had to suffer once and for all on the cross, and his blood totally removed all sin. 
He was so good at what he did. He was so good at his work of, of providing salvation that he accomplished the work, which was just one sacrifice for sin. Jesus said, it is finished, period. Not Jesus and or plus. Jesus, period. And then Peter shows us the evil of the suffering in 1 Peter 3.18. He says he was be, he being put to death in the flesh. The mistreatment of Jesus Christ wasn't a lightweight thing. It was no small thing. It resulted in his death. He died as a result. The enemies of Christ wanted him dead. There are many in this world that would like to see him gone and forgotten. Never brought up. And there are movements that are trying to quiet the voice of God's people, the word of God, even God himself. His enemies want him dead. Oh, but the best thing is that we see victory over that suffering. It says there, 1 Peter 3, 18, but made alive by the Spirit. And this speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. This was victory over the suffering that he received at the hands of, of the religious leaders and, and, and the officials. His suffering, all that he went through, could not triumph over Jesus Christ. It did not, they, they couldn't get victory over Christ. All of that suffering couldn't keep Jesus down. And you've all heard the saying, it's hard to keep a good man down. And it won't keep the believer down either. Evil may be sitting on the throne today. But you know what? Its eventual and final, final defeat is coming. It's coming. Because righteousness will overcome evil. So many Christian churches celebrate Good Friday with a quiet and simple service as we are tonight. And it's usually held in the evening. Where Christ's death is remembered with special songs, prayers of thanksgiving, and a special message centered on Christ's suffering for our sakes. Which we just did. And then they take part in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do. And this is leading right into now. Communion. Whether or not Christians choose to celebrate Good Friday, the things that happen on that day should always be on our minds. Because you see, the death of Christ on that cross is the greatest event in the Christian faith. Evangelical churches only recognize two ordinances established and required by Jesus for his people to observe. Baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, as it's called, or the Eucharist, which means the giving of thanks. Jesus said, repent and be baptized. And then he said to, to have this communion, this supper, the bread and the cup, till I return. Jesus took the cup and he took the bread. Those are the simple ingredients of a common meal in that day. But Jesus took them and he trans transformed them into a meaningful spiritual experience for believers. But the significance of the experience of communion depends upon the condition of our hearts. 
the condition of the hearts of those who are taking communion. And this was the problem at the church in Corinth. The people in Corinth, their hearts weren't right. And it's a serious thing. And the Bible warns us, it's a serious thing to come to the communion table with an unprepared heart in an unworthy manner. That means to come with bitterness or anger or grudge grudge in your heart. Whatever it might be, ill will, ill thoughts. It's also a serious uh, thing to receive communion uh, in a careless way as well. It's the same thing in a more unworthy manner. Because the Corinthians had been sinning in, in their taking of the Lord's Supper, God had to discipline some of them. And as a result, Paul said, hey, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. That means have died. The Lord's Supper gives us a chance for spiritual growth and blessings if, if we come to the communion table in the right heart attitude. So what do we need to do if the supper is to bring blessing and not chastening? Well, first we look back and we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then Paul said, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. He said, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. And do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Because every time you eat this bread, he said, and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So the broken bread reminds us of Christ's body. And the reason they call it broken bread, because in those days they didn't have sharp utensils for cutting the bread like we do. So they take the loaf and they pull a piece off. And if you've ever just pulled a piece of bread, you know, it's, it's all jagged and it's, it's not a smooth cut. It's, it's, and they call that broken. And that broken bread reminds us of Christ's body that was broken up for us. The brutal whipping, which tore apart his flesh right down to his backbone. And the cup reminds us of his shed blood. It's an amazing thing that Jesus wants his followers to remember how he died. And, and, and that's why I, Jesus, I believe, made this, this, this institution. He established this till the day he says, because he knows how caught up we get in the world. He knows how busy we get and how much we have going and we have a tendency to forget the things of God. Now, most of us try to forget how those that we love died. But Jesus wants us to remember how he died. Why? Because everything that we have as Christians center on his death. We have to remember that he died because this is a part of the gospel message. Christ died and was buried. It's not the life of our Lord or his teachings or his miracles that will save sinners. It's his death. 
So we also remember why he died. Jesus died for our sins. He was our substitute. Paying a debt he didn't owe because he knew it was a debt we couldn't pay. We should also remember how he died. He died willingly, meekly, showing the world his love for us. When he was taken to that cross, there was no resistance on Jesus' part. There was no struggle made. He didn't try to pull away from those that were going to nail him to the cross. He was led like a lamb, Isaiah 53 says, to the slaughter. He willingly took upon his body the sins of the whole world. But this remembering isn't just remembering historically what happened when we come to the communion table. It's taking part in those spiritual realities. At the Lord's table, we're not looking at a monument. We're not praising a monument or worshiping a monument, some kind of idol. Something that's to be admired. We have fellowship with a living Savior as our hearts trust in Him by faith. And then Paul said we should look to the future. Jesus said, do this till I come. We are to observe the supper till He comes. And the return of Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the church and every individual Christian. Jesus not only died for us, but He rose again. And he ascended to heaven. And one day Jesus is coming back to take us to heaven, to be with him. That's why Jesus said, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. He said, there's more than enough room in my father's house. And if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And he said, when everything is ready, I'm going to come and get you. So that you will always be with me where I am. So as we close. Today, obviously, we're not all what we should be. But when we see him. John said, we shall be like him. In our new bodies. After our glorious change, our glorious transformation, we will be like him. John tells us that we're going to be like him. And the reference here is is to the time of Christ's coming for his church. You see, this is an incentive to live holy lives. Because he is coming again. So Paul said, let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And that greatest harvest, man, is going to be when Jesus comes and we are in our glorified bodies. John warned us as well, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked so hard to achieve. He said, be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day Good Friday it is good Father because of what took place on it it wasn't good for Christ but it was good for us and Jesus always did 
what was good for us. Whether it was through trials or tribulations, whether it's through our difficult times, things that we don't understand, it's always for our good. In Christ's infinite wisdom. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And after after this altar call, we're going to partake of communion. The Bible warns that if you don't know Christ, you're still in your sins and you shouldn't partake of communion. And if you're a believer and you come to the table in a worthy manner, that's also a serious thing. It shouldn't be done. This time is to make things right. For the unbeliever, it's your time to make Christ your Savior, your Lord. And for the believer, it's time to seek Him for forgiveness that I may come to the table in a worthy manner. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And this is your time to reflect on the message, to meditate on what was said, and to allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart before we take communion. So as we worship, if you're here and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll say together a simple prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.